I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. John Fielder. He attended Williams College, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude with highest honors in chemistry. He received his Doctor of Medicine from Baylor College of Medicine, graduating Alpha Omega Alpha with honors. Dr. Fielder completed his training in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Following his training, he moved to Kenya, where his work focused on the care of HIV-infected individuals and the training of Kenyan healthcare providers. During the scale-up of antiretroviral treatment under the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, Dr. Fielder helped establish HIV clinics in Kenya and the country's largest HIV clinical training program. He is the author of Tuberculosis in the Era of HIV, a practical manual for frontline health workers, which has been widely used in Africa. In 2009, the Fielders moved to Malawi, Southern Africa, to work at Partners in Hope Medical Center, a clinic focused on the care of the HIV-infected. While in Malawi in 2010, John and his college friend, Mark Gerson, a businessman and philanthropist, founded African Mission Healthcare, AMH, a nonprofit organization that strengthens mission hospitals to help people in greatest need. AMH has awarded $30 million to 47 partners in 18 countries. Its work has enabled 700,000 patient visits, over 20,000 surgeries and corrective procedures, and the training of 3,700 African healthcare providers. With partner Dr. Tom Katena of Sudan, AMH was a co-recipient of the 2017 Aurora Prize for Awakening Humanity. In addition to his role as chief executive of AMH, Dr. Fielder is a consultant physician at Mawa Methodist Hospital and an adjunct assistant professor of medicine with the University of Texas Medical Branch. He lives with his family at Rift Valley Academy in Kenya, where his wife is a mental health counselor and his three children attend school. John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Aaron, great to be with you. So your, your path, uh, your medical path is, and personal path is truly fascinating one, in part because of its altruistic nature, but in part too, I think because of its unorthodox nature. Medicine is rigid by design and the path through training is laid out for everyone to follow. And most follow it in a fairly lockstep fashion. One begins by going to undergrad for four years, then medical school for four years, internship, residency, fellowship, job at an academic medical center or private practice. And uh, the expectation is that one really follows this path. So to stray from it is very unusual. Tell us about how you got into medicine and, and what inspired you to sort of stray from the path that's, that's laid out for most of us. Well, you know, Aaron, I think that I was on that path. Um, you know, I liked science as an undergraduate. Um, I considered going to chemistry graduate school, but I kind of defaulted into, well, you know, medicine's a, it's a great profession, like science can help people, can make a good living. But, but when I was in medical school, uh, I, I really made a faith commitment. And I was very fortunate in that I had a mentor who had been a, a medical missionary in Uganda in the 1980s named Rick Goodgame, a remarkable clinician and educator. And, uh, you know, that really, uh, uh, it, it really um, set me on a different path. I ended up taking a year off from medical school and volunteering in India for a couple of organizations, including Mother Teresa's hospices. And when I came back, 
I I knew that I was called uh, to this kind of setting, and and really because of Doctor Good Game, I became very interested in East Africa and headed on that that career path. And when I was in residency, in those few spare moments that one has as a resident, I I used to spend time sort of surfing medical missionary web pages, very primitive at that time, and and trying to look for a place to go. And, and that's how I ended up in Kenya. And what what experiences, I guess, or what was it about those experiences um, when you were volunteering as a student inspired you? Was it just kind of the all of them in, in total, or were there specific instances where you said, oh, wow, this is an epiphany for me? Well, of course, the scale of the need. Uh, and uh, while a medical student and while a resident, I became interested in the care of people with HIV. And, and of course, in the early 2000s, HIV was raging in East and Southern Africa. And, and so it was... Um, a coinciding of these clinical interests and my exposure to the scale of the need. And yeah, a little bit of um, uh, wanting to do something different. But again, a, a, for me, a real faith call um, that if I was going to live as a, a Christian doctor, that I needed to um, think about my my life and my career in, in a different way. And and that led me uh, onto the mission field. You know, in some of your writings, uh, you mentioned that uh, a missionary colleague once told you, the longer you stay away from American medicine, the more irrelevant you become back home. I have had the experience of close to a month practicing and teaching in Dar es Salaam. And this statement struck me as entirely accurate. Is this a point of view that you share? And can you talk to us a bit about why you think this is? Well, it is. I mean, I, I think I'm very much uh, approaching irrelevancy back home, um, where, wherever home is now. And, uh, you know, it, medicine just changes so much uh, and, and it changes so quickly. And, and part of that, of course, is the actual medicines, but, you know, those can be learned. It's, it's more protocols, ways of, of thinking and, and doing things. Also, uh, it, it's so gratifying to, to work here. Um, of course it has many, many frustrations, but knowing that, you know, my skills, I, I believe have, uh, you know, a marginal impact here, meaning, um, an incremental impact, um, higher than I think it would be back in the United States. I think it would be difficult to make that transition back. I mean, certainly uh, a number of missionary doctors, they may spend three years out and then go back and, and work for six or 12 months. We've never done that except for, for one break. And, you know, our life has been, been here. And I find it increasingly difficult to consider going back. I, I told my wife that, you know, if we have to go back for any reason, you know, family reason, medical reason, that of course we, we would go back, but she need to understand that I'm just waiting to die if that happens. I think I'd rather lose my arm than leave. Uh, I, I just, uh, we feel that this is our home and it's, uh, again, very um, gratifying work and we're very privileged to, to be able to do that. H having said that, we definitely know people who 
are, are very committed and, and circumstances arise. And the idea, uh, though, of, of going back and clicking on an EMR and dealing with relative value units and uh, that kind of corporatist medicine, it, it scares me. Yeah. And I, I guess that's kind of how I thought about this statement that the longer you stay away from American medicine, the more relevance you have because you're, you're effect, the effect size is so much larger elsewhere. In American medicine, you sort of, you become a part of this bureaucracy with, you know, dozens of other physicians around you with the same access to, to what you have. And it, it's, and I hate to say this, but it, it's a little bit, American medicine is a little bit like a factory because, you know, you have your clinic schedules every day, patients come in, patients come out, you know, there are uh, metrics that you have to meet, as you mentioned, RVUs that you have to earn and it's become this machine. Mm. Yeah. You know, I read one of your posts when you, I think you, you talked about the layers that are there in, in academic medicine in the U.S. And, and they're there for a reason and they're, they actually are helpful, but then you, you feel like you're part of that machine and you've got the medical student and you have the intern and you have the resident and then, you know, you have the chief resident and the attending and the fellow, <laughs> you know, so you have this entire, entire hierarchy there. It, it helps because it's much less likely that something's going to be missed or, you know, somebody has some expertise that you don't have. Here, uh, I often find that, you know, that those layers are um, much fewer or, or thinner. In Kenya, we have uh, many more uh, Kenyan doctors than in the past, uh, but, but still not, not nearly enough. And uh, still the majority of Kenyan doctors don't get a chance to do a residency. They do an internship and then they stop. And, and so in many cases, I mean, as a general internal medicine doctor, you know, I, yes, I do HIV and infectious diseases, but it's cardiology and pulmonary and autoimmune and, and you name it. And, you know, you don't have, you don't have that entire system to fall back on. So in some ways, you know, I'm up to date on a number of things I probably wouldn't be if I were back in the U.S. as is either a general internist or as a subspecialist, but I'm not up to date in the sense that we have all of those medicines to offer. I mean, if, if a patient can afford methotrexate, then, you know, we're fortunate that they're not going to get intanercept. And so you kind of live in this in-between world. And I've definitely, on many occasions, you know, you, you find yourself forced to make a, a decision well outside of your, of your comfort zone. You, you need to make that decision. And uh, most of the time it, ha it turns out well. Uh, for the patient, but you know there are many times when you you would like to have the cardiologist around to do that procedure. Um, certainly, that's not something I'm going to be able to do. Do you think this life has made you a better physician? I uh, I do. I I can remember first coming to Kenya, and of course the HIV problem was very severe and very unaddressed, and certainly from a treatment and. and most other um, perspectives. And I would sit in the clinic and we had raised some money to partner with patients. 
Uh, this is before the Prince Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, made the medicines far more available. And we would we would partner with patients and partner by meaning we would sit with them and say, okay, the medicines cost $30 a month. And they'd say, well, I, I can't afford that. And you'd say, okay, how much can you afford? They'd say, I, I think I can do $5. And then you'd write that in the file. Uh, you know, patient to pay $5, HIV patient fund to cover the rest. And, and that's how we built up the clinic for, for a time. But, you know, sometimes patients would be late, maybe. And that's, of course, dangerous when it comes to antiretroviral drugs. You know, did they miss their drugs? Did they develop resistance? I would sit there and say, oh, you know, why are they late and coming? And, you know, I'm here to help them. And we're, we're helping them buy the medicines. And, you know, I started to go out into the community. I had one in particular uh, um, case that... Uh, it was a young girl. She was HIV negative, but she had uh, brucellosis. And the mother said, well, we have several people back at home who are sick. And I thought, well, maybe they all have brucellosis and this is a treatable infection. We need to go find out what's going on. And I went out with the hospital's uh, credit officer, uh, an older Kenyan man, very wise. And we went to the village and and that really opened my eyes to why patients might be coming late, why they might present late with such severe diseases and um, why they might sometimes miss their appointments. And so when we were ready to scale up antiretroviral therapy, you know, it was very clear that we couldn't just do business as, us as usual. We can't just sit in the clinic and wait for people to, to show up. We need to be out in the community. We set up satellite clinics, support groups. We had transport routes, um, ways to get people back and forth to the clinic. And it's one of the things that, that appeals to me about working in this setting is that it's, you have to have this kind of holistic approach and view of medicine. You, you can't just silo yourself off, you know, language and culture and relationships and uh, understanding these barriers. You, you won't succeed if you don't, um, again, step, step out of the four walls of the hospital. Sure. What did you see in the village that kind of opened your eyes to the difficulties or what difficulties did you see people encountering there that, that gave you this epiphany? Well, you know, uh, there's several, one is transport, uh, you know, just getting back and forth to hospitals can consume sometimes more than it costs to be seen in, in a clinic. A good Kenyan friend and longtime colleague did a qualitative study, a kind of journey map of women who were getting C-sections sponsored through a program that we have in Southwestern Uganda, uh, where most women don't have access to C-sections and can't afford them with predictable consequences. And, you know, usually these families used up all their resources, just getting a, a little, we call it a boda boda or a picky picky, um, you know, just using a small motorbike to get to the hospital. I, I mean, in Southwest Uganda, the hospitals are too poor to provide uh, food to the patients. So to be admitted to the hospital is often to be admitted not to eat. Um, you know, the families are far away and they, they don't have a lot to eat and, and, and the families are supposed to bring food for the patient. And, and so you see these kinds of things, you see the transport difficulties, you see the roads, you know, in some cases in, and especially this is relevant to HIV infection when you have to support people to take lifelong daily antiretroviral therapy. 
you know, what's going on in the home if if this is an orphan who's kind of staying with an uncle, but the uncle isn't really taking care of the orphan, or it's a grandmother who doesn't understand a simple once in the morning, once at night pill schedule, you know, then the child's not going to do well. So you you have to get to the home to educate the family, even start to educate the young child on on how to take the medicines. And so there's just there's just so many barriers to even even getting the patient, you know, to the clinic, you know, ha- having the medicines isn't, isn't enough. And that kind of brings me to, to this point, which is that in, in medical ethics, the question of distribution of resources always comes up. How do we allocate resources when they're limited? And, and we had to consider these questions at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic here in the States. Uh, and in we're now considering this question with an aging population, uh, increasing prevalence of dementia. But this is a question faced by our fellow human beings in Africa on an hour-to-hour basis. How do you deal with this quandary there? How do you think about it or approach it? Um, The dilemma being so much more pressing than most of us here could ever imagine. You know, I've gone through a couple of different phases I, I've been the doctor who this is my patient, and I'm going to do everything within my power and our resources, however limited, to, to try to help this patient, try to save this patient's life. So you, you know, you go all out. I mean, we we know about that. Now, all out is again somewhat limited. When I worked in Malawi, I mean, there was no ventilator. There was, you know, we didn't have a surgeon available to us, so. All out could be, you know, less than all out means in in the U.S. But still, you you expended your effort, your time, your attention on the, on that patient, and I did that a lot when I first came out. And then I I realized that, you know, look, we we just there's just no way in this setting at that time things have changed and improved, but in this setting at that time that putting a lot of resources that includes also the doctor's time into a multi-system organ failure or a patient with pneumocystis pneumonia for whom we didn't have anti, we didn't have antiretroviral therapy and so i mean we would try with oxygen and we would try with with um, antibiotics to help and save that person's life but you know we couldn't put everyone on the ventilator because somebody else got hit on the head and they're on the ventilator and and there's only so much to go around. When I first came out, my predecessor, who's now with the CDC, he said, don't forget the most precious resource is your time. That's the most limited resource. And so I came to realize that, that, you know, if I spend a lot of time over here on this case that, you know, realistically is not going to do very well, then, then these other four or five patients that still need to be seen, they're just not going to get attention or uh, get the care uh, from me that, that they also deserve. Now, when I started working in Malawi at an HIV clinic, there was a very interesting approach there in that there was a set laboratory list and a set medicine list of what the clinic would cover. So, you know, a hemoglobin, that was, you got to have a hemoglobin, right? Um, a, a sugar, a malaria smear, those things would all be covered. Uh, but then there was a, a a group of other tests that had to get special permission 
or the patient had to pay for. And the same was for the medicines. And the idea was utilitarianism, right? I mean, it was the greatest good for the greatest number given the budget for HIV care that that clinic had. And now I've gone one step even above that in running an organization uh, called African Mission Healthcare that works with a lot of different mission hospitals in a lot of different ways. And, and now we have to even think about uh, you know, that utilitarian approach um, in, in even more fine-grained detail. And, and so that gets difficult because I go back and forth between taking care of that patient at the bedside. I know this patient. I want this patient to get everything possible to, we have a budget and we, you know, we need to try to deploy that budget to help the greatest number of people. I, I have a saying that we're all utilitarians now, right? I mean, we, we all, we, we all default to that because it's so hard to make any other case. Unless of course y- your job is day to day, you know, seeing those patients. Uh, here's an example. There was a, a woman from a, a place in Kenya, up further north called Isiolo. And um, someone, a man had thrown acid in her face and she was burned terribly. And she passed by a lot of hospitals to come down to this hospital where I used to work in central Kenya. And, and there's a plastic surgeon, a Kenyan plastic surgeon at this hospital. And, you know, she, she comes in and she's been horribly scarred. And, and I think we got involved as an organization at about the fourth surgery. She had a contracture of her eyelid. And if that contracture wasn't released, then, you know, she might go blind because she can't open and close her eye. And of course, the eye would dry out and, and she's at risk of blindness. So we sponsored that surgery. She had no money. The, I think the first three surgeries the hospital had written off, but she still needed other surgeries after that. So now what do you do when a patient shows up and you think, okay, this is going to probably result in about $5,000 worth of care. And and then she's not going to be able to pay anything. Do you say, I'm sorry, you didn't pass our utilitarian test. Um, we're going to ask you to, to turn around and, and, and go to some other hospital. And, and, and so there's just this balance. I mean, everybody, everybody knows in a, a kind of uh, a technocratic, purely technocratic world, yes, you, you, would, dis, you would deploy resources um, in, a, in the most efficient utilitarian fashion. But that's not so easy to do when you're, you know, facing cases like that one, which are not rare. And so you find yourself making these decisions, it sounds like on a, on a daily basis, um, where you sort of have to balance these resources and figure out which patient's going to get what. Yeah. You know, I, I worked with an orthopedic surgeon, a missionary, uh, who, who was a fantastic clinician in addition to being a fantastic surgeon. I mean, his, his, physical exam and diagnostic skills were, were excellent. And, and he was an extremely hard worker. And, and he said, uh, you know, speaking as a, as a Christian doctor, he said, you know, I'm going to help who, whomever God brings to our doors. And, you know, and I think, you know, I think he was responding. The context I remember was, well, you know, some patients require multiple orthopedic surgeries and some of them can't pay anything. And that, you know, that gets expensive. And, and, but he wasn't thinking about it as, well, well, let me step back and I'm running some 
big NGO and I'm going to allocate resources here or there. Um, but, but yeah, for, for us, we, it's, it is a, a constant, uh, balancing act. You, you know, sometimes there's, if you think about, th- let's take that issue of, for example, of orthopedic surgery, there was a patient who was up in Northern Kenya, who was in another hospital for 11 months in traction with a femur fracture. I think he also, I think he had maybe contralateral. He had like a femur fracture on one side and a tibia fracture on the other. And he was in traction for 11 months. I mean, you know, what do you sort of think is going to happen, you know, after that period of time? And um, a a local leader, you know, found out about this case and said, and, and, and paid for this patient to come to the hospital where I was working. And within 48 hours, the patient was up. He, he underwent the, the surgeon at our hospital, very well-trained uh, Congolese surgeon uh, working in Kenya. And he, you know, fixed the femur fracture and the guy was up on crutches 48 hours later after 11 months in traction. Now, some people would say, well, you know, whatever that cost, 800 or a thousand dollars to do that procedure and all the care around it. But imagine what happened to that man's family. He, you know, most likely, most likely he's the breadwinner in the family. He's not working. Uh, the family, you know, was almost certainly not rich before. Now, where do the school fees come from? Where for the kids, where, uh, does does even the money for food come from? What if somebody else in the family gets sick? So I, I hear this kind of thing a lot. Well, you know, surgery is, is not cost effective and I'm not a surgeon, uh, but we've gotten very involved in surgery capacity building because the need is just so overwhelming. And I, I think it's a failure to think broadly, socially, culturally about the impact of, of disability and of some of these unmet needs. Um, and you know, the, the, again, the technocratic approach will often say, well, let's just hand out malaria bed nets. Um, but I, I don't, I don't think th- that analysis, I think that analysis misses something e- even on its own terms of cost benefit analysis, because when you, when you, when you take, uh, a parent out of the equation in, in any setting, but especially here, um, the, the downstream ramifications for the family, for the children, even for the community uh, is very significant. In 2014, you wrote movingly of the death of a patient of yours. Um, you wrote, there is no code, no heroic rescue from the brink, no futile pounding of chests and cracking of ribs. A long moment, yet only a brief reprieve of shared stillness passes among living dead alike. The patient's husband realizes, body collapsing forward, latching onto me, sobbing. No other family is present. We are what he has, and we are not enough. After 17 years in clinical medicine, it is pathetic that I still lack the most fundamental and humane of skills, how to comfort the bereaved. Give me a prescription pad or a stethoscope, and I will do battle with giants. Clear the field of the living, and I am more than ready to yield and call it a day. Much have I seen, which I would rather forget, AIDS wasting, cancer destroying, infection spreading, plagues of suffocating pain and irretrievable loss. But this, a child still grasping his dead mother, this is perhaps the worst, the agony of Africa. There's a lot to wrap one's head around in this, but 
how do you manage to deal with these tragedies? How have you adapted since then? Yeah, um, I'm not sure that I'm any better than what, what I described in that piece. Um, we, we used to, we took care of a lot of HIV infected kids, particularly early on. I mean, um, fortunately we, we, there's not as many children who are infected, um, through vertical mother to child transmission anymore, but back in the early days, there were a lot. And in a number of these cases, uh, maybe they were orphans staying in an orphanage or they, they didn't know their, their status, uh, even as they got to preteen, teenage years. And that was a mistake. That was a mistake on our part. And I was the head of the clinic. It was a mistake on our, on my part. And, and the excuse always was that I made to myself was, well, I'm just happy that he's alive for another month. I'm just, ha- you know, I, I, it just, we're, we're, we're fighting this pitch battle to keep um, these patients alive and we'll deal with it another day. And that was, I mean, it was, it was an excuse not to confront the hard questions and, and to sit with, you know, a teenager, a guardian to, to try to, you know, work through those, work through those issues. I mean, I am as limited or more limited than uh, many in our profession that, yeah, we, we, we like the prescription pad. We, we like the scalpel. We like to um, provide the care. But once you get out of our controlled comfort zone, these are such uh, difficult sociocultural problems. Um, in terms of you know dealing with it or um, managing to stick it out um, despite these repeated tragedies. Uh, you know, I, uh, faith is, I mean, it's at the center of my response to that, to that question, but in a, in a way it's, um, really about making a commitment, uh, to, to try to, to see things through and not, um, become all despairing. Uh, I mean, there are, there's been a lot of progress. It, it's wrong to say that there's not been progress. If you look at things like under five mortality and um, maternal mortality, HIV, the, but the, the two caveats there are um, first, you know, we're starting from a baseline of, you know, very high mortality rates. So um, yes, we've come far, but there's still far to go. Also, I think it's one thing to focus on rates I think it's another thing to focus on uh, or to think about absolute numbers. What I mean by that is uh, there was a study, I think it was in the Lancet around 2015 that looked at under five mortality in, in Africa. And yes, the rates have fallen, but given the increase in the population, if that slope of that decline in mortality rates doesn't accelerate, then by the year 2030, there could be an increase in the absolute number of children who are dying under the age of five. And I think it's at that level of mismatch for those of us who work quote unquote unquote, on the ground where the number of health facilities and healthcare providers is is not keeping pace um, in in many situations, then 
then you, you know you still see a lot of these cases. And and so uh, one friend of mine who's um, uh, a professor at an academic medical center, he says, when you talk to academics, they think everything's going great. When you talk to people on the ground, they think things are not going great. And and it, I think the truth is somewhere in between. Hans, Hans Rosling, who was a Swedish public health doctor, well-known on uh, for his TED Talks, said, it's okay to say that we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Um, but, you know, you have to have that, that long-term view. Um, you know, when people think about the term medical missionary, probably a lot of what comes to mind is the idea of the medical mission trip. And, and that's definitely not what we're about or what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about, you know, people who have been making many, you know, multi-year, multi-decadal commitments and institutions that have been around for 50 or 100 years or sometimes even more. And, and so you have to have that long-term time horizon to, to know where you've come from and where you are now. And if you can look forward, you can see, well, yeah, we were really, we're really going to get someplace. I, I remember, um, this is probably around 2003 or so. And we had a, every Monday morning, we'd have senior staff prayer at the hospital as the doctors and administrators. And we were kind of sitting around bemoaning the state of things and a visiting OBGYN stood up and he said, I've been here six times. This is my sixth time. And, and I was last year, six years ago. And let me tell you guys what you can do today compared to six years ago. That's a light years different. The care has improved so much. And so sometimes I just have to really, you have to really remind yourself of that, of how um, progress has indeed been made. I got a report from a clinic that we support in South Sudan that it, it seems so boring, but it, it, it really um, uh, gave me a lot of encouragement because we had sponsored one of their staff members to become a laboratory technician. And he came to Uganda and, and got trained and then he went back to South Sudan. And, and, and he set up a blood transfusion service at this maternal child clinic and hospital and had already transfused 100 women and children. And most of that's going to be mostly malaria or postpartum hemorrhage. And, you know, the idea of that place doing that, even just a few years before, you know, you wouldn't have thought it possible. And, and so you just see these steps, one foot in front of the other, um, and ultimately you get somewhere. And just out of curiosity, the, the cultural chasm between the United States and, and um, Africa with regards to death, how have you sort of I mean, is, is there a chasm, I guess, is the first question. I, I suspect that there is. And um, what kind of adjustments have you had to make in, in speaking to family members or patients about, about death? Well, um, I'd have to be careful about overgeneralizing. Um, yes, that, that idea that you, it's not culturally appropriate to, to tell certain family members that the outcome doesn't look good. So you, you, you might not tell the patient, but you might tell the son or the daughter, right? Um, that, th that things don't look good. Um, 
you know, I, I, you, in general, I don't have as frank a conversation as I think a, a lot of doctors, maybe for example, oncologists might have in the United States about um, a, end of life care. This is a terminal cancer. You have a, a life expectancy that's only three months. Now there are good palliative care programs, and I think they address these issues better than I do. We had a, a case a couple of weeks ago in which a woman had metastatic cervical cancer and um, she was in renal failure from, you know, blockage of the ureters and hydronephrosis. And, you know, the questions were all around, okay, what can we do to palliate her renal disease, which, you know, a, a stent was impossible financially could she get dialysis at a local government hospital? Even that financially was going to be difficult because um, of the need to get the catheter placed. But, you know, the idea that anyone would say to her right there and then, um, hey, you know, this isn't, this isn't curable. This isn't fixable. Um, I mean, it was a group of, my it was myself and then a group of uh, Kenyan doctors and, you know, no one communicated that to her. And, and why is that? Is the notion of death just very different or um, like accepting one's own mortality different? Because you're right. I, I think here in the States, we oftentimes feel like we're not being frank enough with patients. Um, particularly, I think this, the oncologist's, uh, face this, uh, where everyone's sort of encouraging them to be more honest about, um, poor prognoses and, and opting for palliation. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting that it's almost the opposite, um, uh, where you're not supposed to be as frank with the patient, but can be frank with family members. I just wonder why, why that is the case or what cultural differences account for that. Um, well, there, there is within, um, uh, some Bantu cultures, the idea that, um, when there is a, a conflict, you go to a third party mediator. So, you know, if, if you and I, um, had, had a conflict in the U S setting, uh, okay, again, we have to be careful about overgeneralizing, but that we, we could have it out right between us, <laughs> you know, that I, I think in, in the social media age, there's plenty of people having it out between e each other. Right. Yes. Right. Um, and, and, but the idea of a mediator, you go and you get a third party. So that's a, f a family member or a mutual friend or a pastor or somebody like that to, to mediate that, that conflict or that, that disagreement. So being overly blunt um, uh, I actually, this past Sunday at, at church, we had a Kenyan pastor, um, who was talking about how difficult it is within Kenyan culture to say, so, say no to somebody else, that it's considered rude to say that. Um, and, and he, he was really funny. He said, I, I can't remember the anecdote that he used, but he, he, he said, somebody had asked him for something 
And he said, well, you know, maybe we'll think about that and maybe that's possible. But he said inside, he was saying, no, 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 that's never going to happen. <laughs> but <laughs> so he couldn't, he couldn't bring himself to say no. And he, he realizes that this is, uh, you know, a characteristic of, of his culture. Um, and so I think part of that is if you say there's no treatment, that can, that can be very difficult and, 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 you know, so much of modern medicine has been successful in this setting that, well, if this doctor tells me, no, maybe I'll, I'll just go to a, a different doctor. Um, and, and so there's, there's always that, that part of it. Now, again, I, there, I have a colleague, I mean, she's been in, in Kenya for almost 35 years and has run a palliative care program for a long time. And, you know, my guess is that they do a lot better at this than, than I do. Um, and that many of us, uh, in this setting do. Um, but, but there is that sense that as this Kenyan pastor said, telling no to someone is, is almost considered rude. Hmm. You've, um, written the past and, and we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation, uh, about certainty. And I, I think it's one of the most salient differences between medicine in the United States and in less wealthy countries. Um, because medicine, even as it is, deals with uncertainty. With all the money and tests in the world, a physician will often enough encounter circumstances where the diagnosis isn't clear or the treatment uh, isn't clear. Time may reveal answers, but it also may not. In the States, having ready access to studies like MRI scans or other advanced imaging pr probably provides answers more often. But, and as you point out, in, in some African settings, advanced testing is available. In most, it is not. Students are afraid to pull the trigger before they know the answer for certain. Too often, clinicians are waiting for data that will never come because of poverty or distance or because those tests just aren't available or aren't very reliable anyway. And by then it's too late. So you must deal with profound sense of uncertainty on a regular basis there. Can you give us some examples? You know, uh, a, a missionary surgeon colleague of mine who worked for many years in Congo and when the fighting would get bad and they'd have to be evacuated, he'd come to Kenya. And he said, you know, in the United States, there's always a referral. In Congo, there was never referral. And in Kenya, there was the theoretical possibility of a referral. And I think that's, that's where it comes in because Kenya, central Kenya is, is really one of the richest regions in Africa and, and, and one of the most developed. It gets hard to extrapolate beyond central Kenya to the rest of Kenya and then certainly to Uganda or or Zambia, or Malawi, um, you, you, those situations are more like Congo. There's basically, you know, never a referral or almost never a, a referral. If people tra travel to another country or have quite a bit of money for some reason, they might be able to find it, find um, specialized care. Uh, so I struggle with this because, um, uh, you know, there are, I see cases at this hospital where I work, which is north of Mount Kenya, where I think, boy, they could really do well coming to my old hospital called Kijabi Hospital. And when I mention that to the patients, 
uh, they, you might as well tell them that they're going, that, that they should just go to Mars for the referral. You, you know, there's just, there, there's no ability to do that. There's no money. Um, if they're sick enough, they they can't afford the ambulance. Um, they don't even, you know, really know where it is. Now there are people who can navigate that, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit here, but for a lot of patients, it's, it's really just not possible. Um, I have a patient I've been taking care of for a long time and she actually got, it illustrates this point. Well, she, she, she was brought to me by the TB officer, which is like a physician assistant who manages the TB clinic because she was coughing blood. And this TB officer um, saw what looked like maybe a, a lymph node on the x-ray. It wasn't a lymph node. It was the left atrium. And the reason it was the left atrium is that she had pure mitral stenosis. She was a young woman, about 20 or so at the time. And, and so she had pure mitral stenosis from rheumatic heart disease. And so I took care of her for a while. She needed some furosemide for um, uh, fluid management and uh, beta blocker, which helped with her symptoms. But it just, you know, it got worse and it was clear that it was getting worse. And I was looking around for options and we finally got her on to the, to the National Health Insurance Fund and sent her, you know, halfway, more than halfway across the country to, to the hospital that does the most, it's a mission hospital that does the most, um, valve replacements in the country. And she got a valve replacement. It was totally paid for by the National Health Insurance Fund. So now fast forward a couple of years and she's doing well and she becomes pregnant. And 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 yet she, unfortunately, she'd let the, the National Health Insurance Fund lapse. And, and the doctors uh, at, the, at the hospital said, well, we really need to refer to a high risk OB center. Um, and so they wanted to discharge her from the hospital. And I said, look, you might as well discharge her to the United States. She has no money. You, you know, it's a totally theoretical possibility. And she even said, look, if you discharge me, I'm just going to go to the government hospital down the road because I have nowhere else to go. And so it, 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 you know, yes, there's the idea if you have enough money, yes, you could find that kind of care in Kenya and in, in a few other places, but for most patients, it's just a theoretical possibility. Hmm. And so the, the, that sense of uncertainty is just something you kind of have to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll make a guess or we'll do the best we can. And, and that's that. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we had also recently a case of a young woman, uh, who had, um, palpable purpura and hematuria and abdominal pain. And, and the question was, was this, um, Hinoxhineline purpura? Was it lupus? Was it maybe Bichette's disease? She had a few other findings. I discussed it with a friend of mine who's a rheumatologist in the US. And, and you know, kind of one of the bellwether tests would be an antinuclear antibody. And that's a send out lab. So the lab at the hospital doesn't do that. And she had the National Health Insurance Fund, which will pay for her care at the hospital, but it won't pay for the things outside. And so she would have to come up with the cash and she didn't have the cash. And it, it was $30. And I've kind of given up trying to get an antinuclear antibody. Um, the 
the regular full-time Kenyan internist at the hospital asked me, can we set up a fund for pathology? It's about $50 to get a pathology sample read in Nairobi. There's a whole system for sending the samples that so it's all there, but patients just, especially post COVID, they just can't afford it. Um, and so, you know, your choices are wait for that data. That's probably not coming or try something, you know, think about, okay, what's our local epidemiology? What do I find in history and exam? And, and what could I do locally to, to make the diagnosis? And then I'm often teaching my students and interns about the test of treatment uh, that, you know, you try something and you see how the patient responds. Um, you know, that that's even something that exists within the tuberculosis literature, the test of treatment. Does the patient respond to, to TB treatment or not? Of course, you're committing someone to a six-month course of treatment, so you do want to be careful about that. But, you know, I, I often have this basic formulation for the students. Like, does the patient have something or does the patient have nothing? Because if they have nothing, they shouldn't be in the hospital. But if they have something, then we need to at least try. And, and I've just found that most of the time we can help people. There are some tests that are cheap and easy and good. Cryptococcal antigen, malaria rapid determining test kit, you know, a few things like that. Um, but for the most part, again, the kind of definitive diagnostic tests, uh, you, you know, um, an MRI read by a trained neuroradiologist, uh, you know, a, a pathology sample appropriately stained um, and read, um, you know, those, again, those are theoretical po um, possibilities for, for many patients. Uh, you know, historically, there has been some criticism of medical missions. I Probably not um doesn't really apply to folks who end up living in a country and taking care of patients there but i think they sort of come in for a few weeks and leave and and the the points seem to me to be as follows one is that without addressing a broken system any help can only be a short term fix uh, and doesn't improve long term access to quality healthcare um and second, there's some acceptance of lower standards in underprivileged settings, uh, absolving a volunteer of taking full responsibility for the delivered care. There's also the criticism that within the framework of training or learning overseas, interventions often take place for the, for the volunteer's own experience rather than a patient's need. And fourth, the um, intrinsic quality of short-term missions is this, you know, there's this limited time on location with considerable consequences to local health. Um, and this sort of time is filled with provision of treatments and surgeries, as many as possible to make the visit worthwhile. Um, so they have no way of knowing if the treatment was successful because you just come in, you do a lot, and then you leave and you don't follow up. Um, and I just wonder kind of what you think about these kinds of criticisms or what your thoughts are about short-term medical mission visits. Um, are these criticisms valid or does it even matter? I mean, maybe they're valid, but the benefits to the countries and the patients and the people in question outweigh whatever, you know, risks or, um, you know, depending on how cynical you are, kind of leeching is at play here. Yeah, well, I would mostly agree with 
with the criticisms of, of the short term. But let me define what I think they're mostly talking about with short term there. The idea of coming and, you know, s- setting up shop in a, in a, maybe in a mission, uh, usually maybe in a government hospital or a clinic or something and, and, and doing, you know, just a whole, you know, run of, of, of surgeries or going out to the village and setting up a, um, a camp, you know, and, and passing out some Tylenol and treating a little bit of blood pressure and pneumonia and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, I think the one where I may, uh, differ is the idea of, you know, accepting a lower standard of care. I mean, that's just, that's just the reality. I mean, we can't make two plus two equal 11 here. I mean, we, we just don't have the resources for that. Um, and so they're, uh, whether you're talking about a, a missionary doctor or an African doctor, many of us, um, improvise to provide care. That's pretty good. Okay. Again, it's like, um, you know, we don't have infliximab. We have, we have methotrexate if we're lucky. So we're already accepting a lower standard of care because that, you know, that's just the reality, um, uh, of the setting. I mean, we're, we're, we don't have the resources for that. But, but the other criticisms I think are, are valid. Now there are, um, times when short-term doctors maybe come for a month and they plug into a functional system. So they, they come to a already functioning hospital and maybe the surgeon is on furlough or somebody had to go to a conference. And so you need someone to cover and they come for a month to cover and they just slot in and they're working within the same system. Um, so a lot of mission hospitals benefit the, the, the leading organization that does that is Samaritan's Purse's uh, uh, World Medical Mission. And that allows, you know, the, the, the full-time doctors to get a break and, and can sometimes bring a specialist or subspecialist in to, again, a, you know, a functional institution um, and slot into that. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's more like a locum in the United States, right? We wouldn't say that a locum, you know, is making things worse by, you know, covering the medical ward for a month. Um, but that, you know, this idea of setting up a, a, a medical mission in the village, I mean, how, how do you treat HIV in a week or two? How do you manage high blood pressure, of which there's a lot here, in a week or two, uh, tuberculosis? And uh, this is a little bit of inside baseball, but there in the mission community, there was a very well-known missionary surgeon named Dan Fountain who um, got very involved in community health around things like prevention of typhoid fever in Congo and, and thinking about the, the delivery of this healthcare very uh, holistically. And he said, you know, these short-term trips really killed the long-term mission um, because a lot of those resources, financial resources that w- would have gone to the hospital or the work of the long-term group now go to the short-term group. And, um, so I, I think there, there's definitely some, some valid criticisms there. And, you know, that, even that term medical mission, I mean, we, it's even used in a secular, you know, uh, a way now it's, it's not necessarily a church group or a, a Christian group. It's a lot of groups ha- have that. In fact, I, I know a travel agent in Kenya and they have, this isn't necessarily medical, but they, they have the, the short term mission trip 
that is for the secular groups and they have the short-term mission trip that is for the Christian groups. And you just do slightly different things. But it brings it back to who's the experience for and who's the experience about. Sometimes people will say to me or have said to me, well, that must be a great experience. And, you know, I say, well, not really. You know, patients dying when they shouldn't be dying, patients suffering when they shouldn't be suffering, not having the resources that we need to take care of patients. Um, you know, you know, gosh, if, if, if someone has lived their life and they have what you and I know is um, incurable cancer, I mean, it's going to happen to us all, right? I mean, something's going to happen to us all. But when you're talking about a young person, you're talking about, you know, a fixable condition and we don't have the resources. How, how is that a good experience? Seeing that it's not a good experience. Now, if you, if you, if you apply effort over the long term, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't quote Camus, but I will from the plague, a, a never ending tension of the mind. If you, if you, if you apply, you know, your effort over the long term, yes, as I described before, you can make that, you can make that difference. Um, but to describe it, you know, in the short term as great experience is, um, is, is I don't think, um, accurate. We, we had, um, a case that we sponsored. We have a part of what our organization does is sponsor surgeries for individual patients. And we had a case of a, I think he was about 12 or so, um, boy, only a couple hours away from this big mission referral center, which is known for its orthopedics in central Kenya. And he was from a place called Nakuru and he fell from a bridge and he broke his hip and his pelvis and his arm. And this was in no, around November of 2020. And he, he stayed in a, in a hospital near his home for a few months. His mother was a single mom who washed clothes and made $2 a day. Um, uh, and, and $2 a day in Kenya, I mean, you, you're hanging on by your fingernails. I mean, it can be an expensive country. I mean, you're just barely hanging on. You're just lucky if you got two meals a day, you know, on $2 a day. In, in a, and, and so it was only after a few months, I don't know what happened. Somehow he finally made his way to this hospital, Kijabi, and we sponsored his surgery. And the, the one that we was submitted to us for sponsorship, and it goes through a process, and and it was uh, uh, fixing the, the hip fracture. When they got in, they, they said, "Okay, let's explore the arm." Well, it was it was I think full of pus, and, and the bone was destroyed. And it was non viable. They had to do a guillotine amputation above the elbow. And. And as part of the process of sponsoring these surgeries, we get feedback from the site. How did the surgery go? Was it successful or not? And then we get a quote from the patient or the, the guardian. And the mother said, I'm very grateful that, that he had his hip fixed, but I just wish that we could have brought him earlier so that we could have saved his arm. Now, again, this is, this is, broadly central Kenya. And I just mentioned this, I mean, this is one of the more developed and richer areas, certainly in my knowledge of Africa. And he's just a couple hours away from a hospital that could have fixed it from really from day one. Um, and yet he lost his arm um, because, because the mom makes $2 a day. 
So, you know, I, th- I think when people say it's a great experience, I'm not sure that they're, they're looking very closely. Right. Tell us the, the story of African Mission Healthcare. How'd you come to start it? And, and tell us a bit about exactly what you do. Well, back, um, I, I first came to Kenya in 2002. By 2006, uh, the PEPFAR program had ramped up. I was helping um, the University of Maryland and a, a consortium of groups that were working with the mission sector to uh, scale up antiretroviral therapy. And so I traveled around Kenya uh, and, and helped mission hospitals set up their HIV clinics. And where I went, I, I just saw people doing great work, great people doing great work. But the, the story was pretty similar. You know, the missionaries have gone home. The founding agencies have gone home. Um, you know, the places feel kind of forgotten. And, and so you'd say, okay, we want you to put a thousand people on antiretroviral therapy in the next year. And they'd say, okay, here are the two small rooms, you know, we have for doing that. Or we want to, we want to expand your lab and they'd show you a place that, you know, it's like a, the equivalent of a walk-in closet in the United States. And, and, and it, and they'd, we'd say, okay, we're going to give you money to hire X number of staff. And they say, well, we don't have anywhere for them to live. And there's nowhere, there's no housing around this place. Um, and, and it's just this, you know, common set of needs. And, you know, I need to point out that, I mean, these were African healthcare providers, they who were sticking it out, you know, who were making these hospitals work, who were running things on a shoestring. A lot of times they were African nuns. We definitely saw that hospitals run by African nuns were some of the best run hospitals. And, and so I just thought to myself, there's got to be a, a better way to help people. And, and there's a real opportunity here to, um, you know, the very fact that these hospitals are open. I mean, people talk about sustainability. I, I'm not sure they really know what that means. I mean, when you have to, you know, keep the hospital open based on what little the patients can pay in this setting, I mean, you've proven that you can steward resources. So I filed that away. Um, we ended up moving to Malawi. Um, I had a, a, a group of friends, uh, Mark Gerson, a very good friend of mine, uh, going back to college and, and a few others who had been helping us to build satellite clinics so people with HIV could get you know, closer, uh, care closer to their homes and, and a bunch of things like that. And, and they said, okay, what's the next big thing? And I said, I'd really like to, to create a, a support organization that would help these good people, both missionary and African healthcare providers. And so that was, that was the genesis um, in 2010 of African Mission Healthcare. And we, uh, we have a, a challenge with our organization is that we don't do, just do one thing. We don't just do water or malaria or, it, you know, we kind of came out of the HIV crisis, but, you know, that's now a small part of what we do. Um, we got very involved in, in really institutional capacity building. We think Africa needs strong health institutions. So what does that mean? It, it means infrastructure and equipment. It means working with hospitals on their governance. 
and administrative functions. It means um, uh, helping with medical education, either helping um, medical education programs at the hospital or sending away their staff for medical education scholarships, and then sponsoring direct clinical care. Uh, because there are just some places where if, if you don't do that, patients just, they can't afford the care. In other places, patients you know have a few more resources and the hospitals are more sustainable on their own. So that's, we, we kind of run the gamut, but we have um, some long-term relationships with hospitals uh, where we, we try to work with them over time to strengthen the institutional capacity and, and, and increasingly to, to think about uh, medical education programs at admission hospitals. Where can people go to donate to this incredible organization? They could uh, type in the URL AfricanMissionHealthcare.org or you know, just Google African Mission Healthcare and hopefully they'll come up, uh, will come up, uh, either African Mission Healthcare alone or African Mission Healthcare in my name, John Fielder, and we should come up. Great. John, thanks so much for taking the time and for all the uh, incredible work that you do. Well, Aaron, I really enjoyed it and thank you for having me. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.